Welcome to Slate's I Have to Ask. I'm Isaac Chotner. My guest today is Orhan Pamuk, the internationally recognized and Nobel Prize winning author of numerous novels such as My Name is Red and Snow. He's also the writer of numerous nonfiction books and essays that often appear in The New Yorker and elsewhere about his native Turkey. Pamuk has been criticized and even prosecuted by the Turkish government for speaking out in favor of freedom of expression and calling attention to the Armenian genocide and the Turkish treatment of Kurds. His work often features a close reading of Turkish history, including its Ottoman past. He's also written extensively about his home city of Istanbul, where he was born. Pamuk is now 65, and this month his 10th novel, The Red-Haired Woman, is being released. I had wanted to speak to Pamuk both about his latest novel and his body of work more broadly, and about recent events in Turkey, where, after a failed coup attempt last year, the Erdogan government has been cracking down on civil society and journalists and political enemies. Pamuk joins me now after some technical difficulties in our studio prevented an earlier chat with him. Orhan Pamuk, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. I'm... Yeah, why don't we start again? You know, this is the second time I'm talking. I've waited. You know, I'm demoralizing in this. Now, are you sure it's all technically okay? I think we're... Are you, are you sure that you're not going to stop me again? I promise we will not stop you again. Okay, let's start again. Just ask me some questions. Just cheer me up, you know, and don't stop me. And if you're going to do that, I'll don't do it. I won't continue with this interview again. Okay, okay? no, we promise not to stop you again. And uh, you were saying before we got interrupted the first time that you, uh, you're on an island outside of Istanbul and you go swimming. Okay, I'll repeat again. Let's start. Um, just start. Is this the beginning now? Just yeah, yeah. We're starting. We're starting. I was. I was going to ask what you were. What you were doing because you said you started before we had an issue. You said that you go swimming after you work every day. I'm in an island. Okay. Hello. I'm in an island away from Istanbul. One, I am in an island one hour away from Istanbul. In the mornings, I swim. Then all day, it's a summer house. I work. Then late after this interview. I'm going to swim again at the end of today. This is at the end of the day here. And uh, I read an interview with you where you said you work up to 10 hours a day. Is that still true? Yeah, sure. I'm happy working. And I don't see writing fiction as work because I feel like a boy who is pl- playing with his toys all the time. Do you feel like writing nonfiction is work? No, I am now writing fiction. Most of the time, my mind is busy inventing things rather than pinning down reality in nonfiction. Right, but when you are doing nonfiction, does that feel like work? Um, it feels more journalistic. Uh, now, at this age, I only write things that I want to write about, and it always feels like game, invention, fun. I am definitely a happy writer. This this book that's coming out this month, The Red-Haired Woman, is your 10th novel, I believe. And um, Yes, the, the process of writing your 10th novel, how is it different than when you started uh, writing fiction th- in terms of process? At the beginning, when I started almost 40 years ago, um, I was more epic, more panoramic, and perhaps more experimental too. But this time, I wanted to write a short novel with metaphysics and philosophy in it. I also wanted to tell a realistic story about a master well digger and his apprentice. These people I observed in the next land next to where I lived in the summer of 1988. It was again in an island um, and I was writing one of my books and, um, and they were the last 
old-fashioned well diggers, and, and they were still in business in the peripheries of Istanbul. Um, because there is not enough government water, um, especially in 70s and 80s, everyone dig a well and found his water in his own garden. I observed as they dig a well, the father-son relationship between the old master, well digger, and his teenage disciple. The old master was both teaching and shouting at the boy, and very tenderly protecting and caring about him. This I saw every day as I went at night downtown. I, um, their relationship moved me, a sort of a father and son relationship, perhaps because I was raised by a father who was not around too much and who never tried to control me. And in fact, that's how my father was, did not know much about me. How is your father still alive? Is he? Did he pass away? No, he passed away. When did he pass away? Um, Twelve years ago. Did he ever read your fiction? Yes, he was. He backed me so much. I wrote my Nobel Prize acceptance speech about a text about my father. Uh, my father's suitcase. There was a. Um, he also wanted to be a poet. He wrote poetry. Um, he was not successful, but he did not run after success either. So before he died, some 12 years ago, he gave me a collection of his writings. And I wrote an essay about it. And it's also a poetic essay. This was in The New Yorker, I think, also. Um, yes. Do you remember the feeling that you got when he read your first, the first thing that he read that you wrote? He was very kind, very um, um, very respectful. I was moved by the fact that he didn't criticize me. He treated me and my brothers, too, also, as if we were geniuses. And my relationship with my father set the tone of this book. Besides being a, um, this novel, The Red-Haired uh, Red Woman, a sentimental and personal roots, the novel, it's also a fictional comparison of Sophocles, Oedipus Rex, which is about killing of the father by the son, a sort of a parasite, and Persian poet Ferdowsi's classical tale in his penguin classic um, Shahname, or um, Book of Kings, the story of Rukht, Rustam, and Sohram, which is also a counterpart to Oedipus, because this time the father kills the son. It's a filicide. These are canonical texts of Western and Islamic civilizations. You know, each year, I, one semester, I teach at Columbia University, and at the top of Columbia University's Butler Library, in big capital letters, Sophocles, Aristo, Shakespeare, ten big names are written, and Columbia is good at teaching classics. But I ask myself, what about the Eastern classics? What about something to compare Oedipus Rex with? We tend to associate Oedipus with individualism because he kills the, his father and we still respect him. And we tend to um, associate Rustam, the father who kills his son. Um, the father is also a king with authoritarianism. Why? Because 
the whole text in Ferdows's Shahnameh, Book of Kings, about Rustam and Suhrab, this little short story, is about legitimization of the father killing the son. I think we moderns, the way we read Sophocles, Oedipus Rex, is also a sort of legitimization of the son killing the father. We respect we, um, Oedipus. We understand his pain with our compassion. When we understand him, we also um, respect his transgression. So I wanted to write about these things, fathers, sons, lack of fathers, individuality of the son. Let me ask you this. You said something very interesting, which was about East and West and Eastern classics and Western classics. How how much do you see your work consciously as, um, I don't want to say necessarily a bridging of East and West, but... Um, yeah, I understand your question. Uh, okay. It's, I don't want to be self-conscious about it. The same goes um, um, when my books begin to get translated internationally after mid-1990s, especially in early 2000s. Everyone began to call me, oh, a bridge between East and West. Right, right. I didn't like it. Um, why? Because I don't write my books to explain my country to others. It's, it's I, I write, perhaps I'm deceiving myself and I'm naive, but for more deeper reasons. The same I've heard about being a writer of Istanbul. Yes, of course, I'm writing about Istanbul. All my life, I lived in Istanbul. I'm 65. I lived here in this town almost 65 years. It's inevitable that my stories will be about Istanbul. But it was not a self-imposed program. Oh, let me be an Istanbul writer. No, I was writing about people I know, like every all the authors. But then, yes, I was writing about humanity. But yes, I came across humanity in Istanbul, and indirectly, I'm an Istanbul writer. Around early 2000s, I discovered that through international critics who called me first a bridge, let's skip that, then a writer of Istanbul. Again, it was not my program, but I learned from these. For being a bridge, explaining my part of the world to the rest of the world, well, I'm writing stories. In the end, when they're successful, it explains something. But that's not the motivation. My motivation is not to be a bridge. Do you consider yourself a European? Um, yeah. Like all Turks, I am both a European and also belong to Turkey or part of... I'm a secular, but also I'm a, a sort of a modern continuation of Islamic culture. I'm not a religious person, but yes, I'm a secular person, but I belong to that civilization. Yes, I am. Also, proudly European, in the sense that I was spending, wasting perhaps time politically promoting Turkey in, uh, so that Turkey joined European Union in early 2000s. These were good times. Things went to worse direction. And now Turkey is not really a seriously candidate, and Turkey is picking up fights with Europe. I'm very sorry about that. Um, what was your first emotional reaction when you learned that there had been a coup or there was an ongoing coup against the current government? I, was, I, did, I did not learn about it. I, um, I watched it at, at, at it happened, really. It, uh, at 9.20, when it started, I was already um, getting news from media, from Internet, mostly from TV. And I watched it with amazement, horror. I continued to watch it till 3 o'clock in the morning, realizing that 
the military coup will not be successful. And I took a sleeping pill. I was so manic, so tense that I realized that I cannot sleep. Uh, uh, I was extremely happy that it failed. And, and I was also um, grateful for those brave people who went out to the streets and um, uh, stopped the tanks. These people were not liberals like you and I in the Western European uh, sense, but they were people um, who were defending Erdogan or their party or their democracy, but they were not um, defending my liberal values, but in an indirect way, they defended Turkish democracy. And do you feel the same way now, uh, a year later? I don't feel the same way now. I'm grateful to those uh, people, but the government um, um, used the military coup as an excuse to purge most of the liberals, most of its criticizers, most of the people who criticize the government are pushed out of the government offices. And there are now 40,000 people in jail and 140 journalists who are present. Um, fiction uh, fiction writer, uh, writing books, fiction books is no problem in Turkey. But if you venture into politics like um, uh, journalists, um, political commentators, you are in trouble. That's how you got in trouble as well, talking about yes. politics um, and history. I had many troubles with the government, not because of my um, novels, but because interviews, things that I said, my political commentary, they always ask that. You know, um, the old-fashioned, stereotyped um, um, cliché about repressive uh, problems writers are mostly are based on uh, uh, Soviet Union or Germany of 30s, uh, where they, you know, they could not even write like Kafka. It's, you know, you can write like a Kafka, no one would bother you. Um, on, you know, as, soon as, on, uh, as long as you don't criticize government. But if, if you criticize government, I have friends in jail just because they criticize the government. Um, um, but there are many brave people here in Turkey. Turkey is not only the ruling party or Erdogan or AKP. There are also brave liberals, people who are fighting back. And in the last election, the government camp got 51% and the opposition got 49%. It's even. It's interesting. That's why I am here. And of course, it's my country. Does Erdogan interest you as kind of a, as a sort of a novelistic figure um, or a figure? No, no, no. I don't want to go into that direction. Yes. Let's talk about the book. Uh, Okay. Can I, can I ask you about a previous book, which is? um, Yeah, whatever you want. Yes. I read an old quote from yours, uh, not of yours, uh, In Snow, your novel. Uh, this is this is what one, one character says. Um, quote, no one who's even slightly westernized can breathe free in this country unless they have a secular army protecting them. And no one needs this protection more than the intellectuals who think they're better than everyone else and look down on other people. <laughs> if it weren't for the yeah. army, the fanatics would be turning their rusty knives on the lot of them and their painted women and chopping them all into little pieces. Um, what do you think when you hear that now? I mean, I'm not... not okay, just... first of all, that is, in the book, is told by government, a sort of a... Ter- a yes, FBI it's a character. agent kind of person. This is a person who is telling to young lefties, don't criticize the government because they are treating the political Islamists so bad. 
if um, they're doing that so that the country will not be like Iran, the guy is saying. But don't forget, that guy is a right-wing, a sort of an FBI guy who is one by one following all the opposition guys and telling them don't, not to oppose the government. As you see, things are very complex and not easy. It's not easy to know which side is right. For me, my instinct is write your books, mind your books, be busy with your books, and defend your and your friends or everyone's free speech. This is my utopia. This is my lifestyle. I don't demand too much, uh, more than this. I don't, you know, don't ask me political analysis. Uh, my analysis is keeping writing my books and defending free speech and my defending my friends' free speech, other people's speech, free speech, and of course, my free speech. Is cult- I read an old interview with you where you said that culture in Turkey is still represented by secularists. Has that changed yes, at all? Because... Kemal Atatürk's project of secularization, modernization, left such a big and rich and complex legacy. All journalism, advertisement, um, modern um, communications are controlled and run by the westernized seculars in Turkey. In fact, even the ruling party needs their help and assistance. Um, That's what I meant with that. Um, has your project as sort of a writer changed in some way as, as the country has changed through the time that you've been... Good question, ma'am. Oh, um, thank you, um, finally. As, yeah. a, as a writer, I am definitely changing, but my um, determination to write or my love of writing or my um, um, uh, infatuation with everything related to art of fiction is still around. In early years, I was writing fiction more like poetry, thinking that every line, every word, every sentence will be the final sentence. Uh, but as, uh, and I was also um, trying to be very experimental, postmodern, modern, whatever, uh, experimental. But as, as I get older, I uh, also in my early novels, I was writing more about my culture, my people, middle class, upper middle class, secular, westernized, European Turks of Istanbul. This is where I was raised, and this is what I wrote about. Even this book, um, The Red-Headed Woman, is partly about them, and partly not about them. The bigger circle, the whole Turkey, I begin to write more and more about that second circle. um, Not only my secular and bourgeois Istanbul, but the bigger, popular, more big Istanbul that I wrote in A Strangeness in My Mind, uh, which is almost uh, 40 years of an epic about 40 years of development of Istanbul, and this new one, a short novel, but again about the change, a poetic change, and how we... uh, also about generations, fathers and sons. And in fact, this book is, in 200 pages, uh, uh, comes to terms with three generations. You did a fact-finding mission for Penn once with Arthur Miller and Harold Pinter. Is that right? In the 80s? Yes. In 1985, again, there was this time successful military coup, and a lot of writers, human rights people, this time lefties, were put into prison. 
Penn International, uh, American Penn International Penn and Helsinki Watch, international free speech monitoring organizations, send Arthur Miller and Harold Pinter to Turkey. And since I have some fluent English, they may, and I'm a young, upcoming writer, they made me their guide. It was such a joy to be their friend for four days. Uh, I remember those days uh, with great joy while so many people were in prison. Does it feel the same now? Same now, but even worse. Why? Because at that time, there was a light at the end of the tunnel. We were saying we were used to military coups, but this time um, uh, we had more freedoms and we went back. This never happened in my life. That uh, in Five years ago, eight years ago, Turkey had the best free speech in its history, and I was happy about that. Although I had pr- troubles with the government, I didn't care. I was optimistic because I looked at the future. But I still cannot see the future now, and that's what I'm sad about. But don't worry about me too much. I'm writing my books. Don't worry about me. I, 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 believe me, I'm not worried about you. When you come to the when you come to the United States or Europe and teach or you know do whatever it is you're doing, do, do you feel that the way the West views Turkey has has changed in some way? People respond to you differently or or talk about Turkey differently in ways that well, are either... it's very complex. When I came to the United States in 1985 for the first time, when my ex-wife was doing her PhD, when we were in New York in 1985. When there was some little news in, say, New York Times about the earthquake in Turkey, you know, some, some little, little small news in the 12th page, Turks of New York would call each other, did you see the news about Turkey in New York Times? And they would be very proud. Today, or in the last three years, every day there is something about Turkey. First, Turkey's visibility went up. But that was also changing all the time. At the beginning, it was interesting because it's both Islam and democracy and modern and seemed to go towards Europe, which was nice. But in the last three years, it's going to the opposite way, going towards authoritarianism. Um, Journalists, writers are put into jail. Democracy is getting narrow and narrow and limited and limited. And um, liberals, educated, westernized people are very unhappy, and we are thinking what will happen next. This is the mood. And, in fact, because of all that, I'm working and writing more than ever, because it, it's really depressive to be left alone with the news. So then, just to end where we started, when you're, when you're working now, you know, in your, in your office or wherever it is in this beach house that you're in, are you are you not checking the internet? Are you surrounded by fiction? What's your what's your process? I am in a summer house where, of course, there is internet, the delight. And oh, I also came to this summer house with a lot of DVDs and books that I want to read. So I am really very privileged and unique and happy with books, films, work all the time, and and of course, uh, I'm doing this all the time. But as I tell my uh, um, a girlfriend all the time. It's it's um, uh, one feels guilty when one is happy with books and films and, and when one's writing when so much horror is happening in one's country. So many um, guiltless people put into prison in an arbitrary way. It's impossible not to be uh, feel guilty. Uh, 
and my solution or is to work all the time and try to help others. And there's no way out. Tell our re- tell our listeners. I almost said readers. Tell our listeners what uh, what books and DVDs you've been consuming. I'm sure they'd be interested. Oh, so <laughs> uh, you know, um, Mike Lake's Naked. I haven't watched it for so many years. Uh, I um, 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 and everyone. Oh, you haven't seen this? I want to see that. And I also many years ago, um, uh, um, Lucia Visconti's this great Italian dra- director made a film called Leopard, based on the... uh, um, Lampedusa, uh, right? Based on the novel of Lampedusa, uh, Il Gattaporte. And now uh, um, they are going to give me um, Lampedusa Prize in a week in Sicily, and we are going to Palermo next week. So we are watching the film again. It's a great movie based on a great novel. Burt Lancaster, Claudia Cardinale, and Alain Delon also plays. But don't forget that novels are better than films. Just don't get me wrong. There's no, you can't. There's no counterexample. No, no movie that's better than a novel of a, than better than the novel it's based on. The Godfather. The Godfather. <laughs> um, nice to talk to you. It's good to talk to you too. Enjoy your swim. Okay, thank you so thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye. I am, I'm going to swim now. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye-bye. And that's our show for today. I Have to Ask is produced by Audrey Dilling. Our theme music was composed by Doug Chase. If you have an idea for a guest or you just want to let me know your thoughts, please email me at ask at slate.com. That's A-S-K at slate.com. And one other thing, for our Bay Area listeners, we're having a live taping of I Have to Ask on September 26th. That's a Tuesday at 7 p.m. with Franklin Foer, my former boss and the author of World Without Mind, The Existential Threat of Big Tech. It's at Books, Inc. in San Francisco. So please come out on Tuesday, September 26th, if you're in the area, for what I hope will be a really interesting discussion on big tech and what Frank calls its existential threat. You can get tickets at booksinc.net. That's booksinc.net.